This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to Drive, BOF's new podcast series delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words, In this series, we'll learn how Jose Neves, a young Portuguese computer engineer, builds the global fashion marketplace Farfetch in London. If you do not have resilience, you're never going to make it because, you know, at some point along the journey, you're going to go through a struggle. I always remember having, you know, raising money and having a six-month runway. That's it. You know, either we raise money or six months, we shut the whole thing down. Here's my conversation with Jose Neves to learn what it really takes to build a global fashion business from scratch. Good morning, Jose Neves. Good morning, Imran. How are you? Very well, very well. We're sitting in your, I guess it's your global headquarters. Is this where most of of the, like, I know Farfetch is spread all over the world, but this is the global hub. I wouldn't call it Global Hub. It is definitely the HQ. Um, Portugal actually has almost half um, of half the Farfetches. Yeah. Um, 
and that's why we have the engineering and a lot of the studios so there's a lot of stuff happening there but obviously London is the second largest office and, and, it's and, the and HQ. I'm based here yes yeah. but long before there was an HQ and a you know hub and uh, a big group in Portugal and an office in LA and an office in New York and an office in Brazil there was just you and Shanghai and Hong Kong yeah, that, you know so <laughs> what what we're here to talk about today is what what really drove you to to build this global business and I wanted to start from the very very early days actually and like just talk a little bit about what you were like growing up were the things that you did how did you spend your time what were the things that you were passionate about well i i, I was born in portugal mm-hmm. in, the, in the north of portugal in 1974 which is coincidentally the year of the revolution in portugal there's a bit of revolutionary in me i guess because of that and it was a very i'd say gloomy place because you know it was in, in the brink of becoming a communist country and there was a lot of uh, political turmoil and all of that and i am an only child so i didn't have you know many friends and we lived in a small uh, village just outside porto so it was kind of um, a lonely um, childhood and i filled my time with coding i was you know really passionate about computers and I, I got my first uh, computer for for Christmas when I was eight. I was a complete geek, um, not very sociable in school, not, not very popular. And I wasn't into uh, fashion at all. I was um, uh, anti-fashion in a way. Um, although my grandfather used to have a shoe factory. Okay. So, you know, friends and family from that area of Portugal, the north of Portugal, is very close to Inditex, which is the largest fashion company in the world. So there's a lot of manufacturing, uh, manufacturing and design studios and production agencies and whatnot. So I was kind of living next to fashion, but refusing to acknowledge it until I started my first business when I was 19, uh, developing software, and fashion became my, my natural clients. At the time, this was before the internet, this is 1993, uh, technology wasn't a, a global uh, industry, mm-hmm. uh, but fashion was a global industry. So technology, if you think before the internet, um, software was sold in floppy disks and it came with manuals and you would buy a box. What did you dream about? Because every kid has dreams. Like, What were the things that you... So uh, as uh, I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay. Um, but Portugal doesn't have a space program, so okay. I, had, <laughs> I had to settle for a computer programmer. You know, I was in love with uh, science fiction movies and outer space uh, and all of that. And I used to design little spaceships with all the details of where the captain slept and where they kept the groceries. And did you, were and you the captain? I was the engineer designing the ship. Um, um, uh, maybe the astronaut as well, but... When I started programming, I started following Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all that incredible rivalry that those two guys had. And, and it really caught my imagination. You know, how, how must it be to run a company like these guys do and yeah. change the world? Because it was so clear, even at that time, that software was going to completely change the world. And I think that was the other thing that attracted me, attracted me with technology is that there was uh, definitely a transformation that was going to happen in uh, in the world and it was going to be driven by technology. It was clear even before the internet in 96 and 798 with uh, the Amazons and the Ebays and, and all the early 
um, you know, generation of internet companies that became even clearer. When you finally chose to leave, what was it that motivated you to, to take the step out? So I started being closer and closer to shoe factories, essentially. Uh, my family at the time was running one. And then I also fell in love with the creative side of fashion, with the creative side of the industry. And I started seeing how they developed collections and I decided to learn pattern cutting. Oh, really? So I convinced a pattern cutter to between 8 a.m. in the morning and 9 a.m., the first hour, um, he would teach me one hour a day. So I started designing shoes and have them cut my own patterns, have them made. I cannot stitch shoes. I, I was always afraid of getting my fingers okay. <laughs> caught in the needles. Um, but, but I can last shoes. So I started making my own shoes. Your grandfather would be proud. Uh, yeah, no, he, he was at the time. I, uh, he was still, um, still alive. And then I decided to start my shoe collection, which I was very, at the time, I was very rebellious. So I called it swear. Mm-hmm. Swear in the bad sense of the yeah. word, like in As ranting, cursing, cursing yeah. yes. And it was the Spice Girls and Chemical Brothers and Prodigy and Cyberpunk, Cyber Techno. Um, years and, and were you um, living in London at that at that point? I moved to London when I was uh, 22 uh, in 1996 okay. to start the, the, the shoe brand and that was between Portugal and, and London all the time and we opened a little shop in Covent Garden at the time it was cool and it was the shoe street Neil Street, Floor, uh, Neil, street. Neil Street was the shoe street where all the shoe that. shops used to be there yeah, Buffalo was in front of us and you know there, there were a few office was just in the heydays of office at the time and uh, natural shoe star, next star and all of that. So yeah, so that, that was it. And Swear was this completely wacky, crazy, no limits, very street inspired. Those were the days also of the streetwear movement. Uh, it was, I think, the first peak of streetwear with, with Supreme and Bathing Ape and um, hysteric Lamber and you know all of those brands either from Japan or from the US. Mm-hmm. We weren't in, in that movement, we were in the other tribe which was kind of the more techno, cyberpunk kind of tribe but it was in the same period of time and I fell in love with, uh, with fashion, with the industry. It's, it's really... Um, what did you love about it? I, I really loved first the international side of it, the places. You know when, when I, re- I remember uh, going to my first shoe trade show in Germany, in Dusseldorf, of all places, um, was the biggest trade show in the world, and getting orders from Japanese stores. And with these really cool dudes from, from Japan just came and picked up my shoes and wrote an order and said, what the heck, you know, yeah. like, this is so cool. Yeah. And, you know, having, um, you know, Julie Gilhart from Barney's coming and, and checking the collections, you know, she was a goddess for, for me. So. For me, that was like uh, such an eye-opener. And so this will g- give me the chance, not just to evade Portugal, but to travel the world and get to know all these places and, and all these people. And that's what I did. I immediately started traveling. I just checked the other day my, my uh, first um, stamp um, uh, going to, uh, to Macau. Macau was still Portuguese at the okay, time. So yeah. going to Hong Kong and Macau and and going to Tokyo and, and, and to the US and just going around the world and, and visiting my, my retailers, which was a perfect excuse to visit places. But then I fell in love with the places and the people. So I think it's products, I always say products, places and people. But obviously the people is the one that you know, gets you the most. Sure. And, um, and especially small businesses, because when you 
start dealing with the, with these small family businesses, it's all personal. So it's not just a spreadsheet that spits out how much SKUs and depth you're going to buy. It's really a personal choice. And they are betting um, on you as a designer. And they yeah. will stick to you for two, three, four, five seasons until, you know, you eventually In a way, they're taking a risk on you too, right? They're taking because a risk, they're taking a huge bet. And then, uh, you know, next door, there are other designers when you're in a trade show or a showroom. I remember being with Nicholas Kirkwood in Milan uh, in his second collection, something like that. And he was uh, next door to me and we started chatting and, and became friends since then. So that gave me the chance also to understand the small designer. I was you know, one of them, but, you know, to really, you know, work close to them as well and understand the, the hardships and, and the difficulties of starting fashion businesses. So that, that's really what um, I, I love about fashion. I love the whole industry. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just the product. I, I love just the, the, the whole ecosystem and how everyone, I call it an ecosystem because everyone depends on everyone, although yeah. we don't realize it or we don't accept it. So the big guy depends on the little guy, although the big guy doesn't realize it depends on the little guy yeah. until they hire the little guy to, pay, to become their creative yeah. director, right? And if they we all depend on each other, exactly, exactly. And this is this is what I love about it. So in this experience of creating your own fashion business, you also began to see an opportunity for something else, and that's kind of the real genesis. I mean, you talk about Covent Garden. I think the first time you and I sat down was in Covent Garden back around that time, and I remember chatting with you about your ideas for what would become Farfetch. Let's talk about, you know, what was going through your head when you started thinking through what the opportunity would be? Like, what was the, you know, if you sit down with an investor, they're always, mm -hmm. you know, the first thing you have to talk about is the opportunity. Like, how, how were you pitching it to people back then, the idea <clears throat> that you had? So for me, from a personal level, I was absolutely hell-bent in creating something in the intersection of technology and fashion because your two loves at th this there's point. my two loves and i have this parallel life at least dual track i had a technology company in portugal still running i had a fashion business in london and this was dysfunctional you know i just you know i have to come up i always thought i have to come up with something and that actually leverages maybe my unique strength because i'm not that good a shoe designer and i'm not that could a programmer, but I have both. That's and maybe such an that important observation, though, because I think the intersection of things is where there's real opportunities, right? In the past, I think, you know, people used to focus on having one special specialty or specialism. But now everyone has specialties. So, like, to really create distinctive value, you do that at the intersection. And yours was... Like business or fashion. Like you know, business or fashion, yeah. But like, this is about you, Jose. So, <laughs> so technology and fashion. So that was the spark. Th that was the spark. And then I was thinking of, you know, what could work? What, what, does, you know, what does this industry need? What doesn't exist um, yet? And that's when the idea of Farfetch came about. And, and it was really... You know, it was really the realization, and this, this is 2007. So in 2007, uh, Natalie Masne, I think she's the pioneer for the rest of us, she had proven that people will buy luxury online, and this will be a major platform for both big labels and, and emerging labels. She was doing a few hundred million dollars at the time and growing very fast. You could also see uh, retailers that had invested in e-commerce and some department stores, they were um, really 
succeeding. Like Neiman Marcus in the US. Like Neiman Marcus, who started, um, they started really, really early. But then I was in my showroom in, in, in Paris Fashion Week and I could see all these hundreds of boutiques and department stores actually, but you know, mostly the boutiques who were not going to make it because they were not going to start, you know, an internet company, an e-commerce company. And if they did, actually, probably it would be at a huge cost and at a huge risk, financial risk and operational risk for them. So to me, it was crystal clear that, you know, the internet was going to change the industry, but there was a vast number of uh, constituents in the industry who were going to be left behind. And the industry would become poorer. It would become less interesting, more uniform. And if that happens, then uh, fashion dies a little. So for me, it was like, what if you know, someone created a platform and we get all these guys on board? They also bring the, the big labels with them because they also stock not just the emerging designers, but also the, the big designers, which makes for a fantastic consumer proposition. And this should be a platform that is global from day one. And it's an opportunity for people to do what I love doing, which is going around the world and discovering boutiques and, and places. And that didn't exist. And I always thought um, the, the platforms, the Ebays and Alibabas and Amazons, their cloth was not cut for fashion, especially high-end designer fashion. And someone had to come up with, uh, with this platform. And so we said, okay, this is an idea worth doing. Even if we fail, we'll never forgive ourselves if we don't try. This podcast is delivered by DHL, as the logistics partner of many of fashion's biggest and most prestigious businesses, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Now present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL has decades of expertise in logistics and is the world's leading partner for the fashion, jewelry and lifestyle industries, delivering over 1 billion parcels each year. Drawing on its entrepreneurial expertise, DHL offers tailored logistic solutions suitable for any fashion business. From emerging designers to established global mega brands, to independent stores, e-commerce giants and direct-to-consumer startups. For more information about DHL, visit DHL.com. So the idea, in a way, is the easy part. And I actually remember there were a couple other companies around the same time that were trying to do the same thing. The hard part is executing and making it happen. So what was your first step? So you have this idea. What did you do next? What was the first thing you did? I think the first thing we did was really to come up with a very simple execution plan. It involved developing the technology. The technology had to be proprietary uh, because there were not and they, they still don't exist, you know, off-the-shelf platforms that connect inventory sitting in physical stores in disparate locations in real time with one single checkout and, and digital platform. You have to do it internally. So I already had the software business, so I, I remember calling Cipriano, our CTO, and saying, you know, let's stop this ERP business, which is boring and it's not going to go anywhere we're going to build a marketplace for fashion boutiques. And what did he think? So this guy's crazy. <laughs> another, another one of his crazy ideas, but he, he, loves, he loves crazy ideas. 
uh, like all great engineers, they, they love a challenge. So that's it, it took us one year. The, the main question is what makes it a fantastic consumer destination? You know, how many boutiques do I need and what types of boutiques? So that in aggregate, their curation for the consumer makes sense and makes it from day one, it has to be a fantastic consumer proposition. We came up with a list of, we had to launch with around 25, which was the, the number we launched. And we came up with a target, target list. list. And I just uh, started uh, jumping on, on planes and, and, and going what did, and what did the boutique say? Well, it's uh, well. They they didn't they didn't really get what we were trying to do. Yeah. Um, and I think one one of the things people still say today is is uh, how does that work? You get a boutique from Scandinavia, who has a special viewpoint in in fashion, point of view in fashion. You have a boutique from Italy, has a completely different point of view in fashion. You get both together. How does that work? That's the beauty of Farfetch. It's it's actually we're not. Uh, one direction dictating editorial voice. So we're not a magazine. We're actually a community of people with multiple points of view in fashion. And what unites them is a love for fashion. And it's a very original, their own unique take on this industry and their own unique curation. And that's it's, that's, um, that's it's what It's a beautiful them. idea because, you know, my favorite thing about visiting some of these boutiques is as you say, they're very personal, right? So like if you, if you meet the person who owns one of those boutiques, they're the ones going to all the trade shows, they're going into the showrooms, they're like curating a buy that fits with their point of view. And what Farfetch does is it brings all those points of view together. But so if, the, if, if these boutiques didn't get it at the beginning, do you remember the first boutique that you managed to sign on and that it really clicked? Like, who was that? Uh, I cannot remember exactly the first ones because there were a few conversations happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to mention Maria Luisa, who was a legendary boutique owner and, and buyer, curator of fashion. And she definitely uh, had a point of view, right? She, absolutely. Her stores in Paris were known for the Maria Luisa take. So in a way, she's the perfect example. Exactly. And Danielle Pomayou was um, really intrigued by the project. And we actually did a launch event in the Rue de Montabor, in the, the boutique they, they had there. Yeah, so they were, uh, you know, probably the most famous inaugural founder uh, boutique of, of Firefetch, but we had other great boutiques, uh, Feathers here in London, for example, um, uh, Societe Anonyme in Florence, and you know, there were a number of them. And it's really important in fashion who you sign up first and who you can point to, because especially back then when, you know, the whole fashion industry wasn't obsessed with technology and trying to figure it mm -hmm. out, it was all about, well, who... Our industry seems somewhat maybe overly obsessed with who else is involved and who else is. So is that how it gained momentum? You get someone like Maria Luisa and some of these other stores and then the competition or her, her peers and other markets yes, start to pay attention. definitely, definitely. There's a domino effect at the time, especially because people did not understand technology. So the first question is who else is on the platform? obviously it's a chicken and egg situation. And it's, uh, I think that was probably the hardest part because um, who will join a marketplace that has no customers, no traffic? I mean, that's completely pointless, right? And as a customer who will visit a, you know, a website that has no products, how do you untangle this chicken and egg situation? And it, it starts by, by signing the, the boutiques, signing the sellers on, on the platform. I remember in the beginning, we, uh, we even used to uh, create websites for them. 
Well, some of them said, listen, I'm not interested in, your, in this Farfetch thing of yours, but I do need a website. It's okay, fine, we'll do it for you. If you sign on Farfetch, don't worry, we'll be fine, but we'll also create your, your website. So at the point we had like 50 websites that we were running. So and there's so, the technology so bit, there's signing up the boutiques. The other bit that I find absolutely kind of mind-boggling is the logistics element. The global logistics. So like unlike, say, Net-A-Porter or some of these other e-commerce things that exist at the same time, which had three warehouses apart from which they could pull their um, inventory and deliver, you're enabling the customer to check out in one order. But that one order might be sourced from multiple boutiques. The logistics problem for me is like a, also a big challenge that you had to solve. Like how did you... It seems so easy now because everyone uses Farfetch, mm -hmm. but back then that was that was a big challenge as well. It, it, it was a huge challenge, and I think it's a it's a huge uh, competitive advantage we have. Um, for me, it was quite clear that it had to be as easy as shopping at the time as shopping at Apporter, for example. For the customer, the customer doesn't care if you're sourcing it from one location or ten. They want it fast impeccably delivered, great packaging, great return service. So we knew we couldn't let this uh, be done by, by the sellers, so we had to centralize it. Uh, so from day one, we had um, a single checkout, single fraud control system, single logistics and operations and customer service team. And, and that was completely integrated in the, in the platform. It's funny because it also helped that we were in Portugal because there's a lot of you know, international logistics people because of the, the factories and all of that that are used to custom clearance and um, uh, UTCs and uh, duty calculations and, and all of that. So we, we quickly got some people that were really good at global logistics and we, we hired them and we built that logic into the system from day one. So Firefetch is actually a platform with three layers, so there's a technology platform, there is a, a, a logistics platform and there is a data platform. And that has been there since day one. And that I think is one of the secret sauces because we, we were able to leverage existing inventory. So people did not have to take risks. The inventory was already sitting there in their shop floors. There's just that inventory got two chances to sell, either offline or online. And then we could still provide a fantastic consumer experience, even having completely disparate stock points. And that was a, um, what today people call omnichannel or multi-channel. It was this omnichannel vision from, from day one. When I came to visit you once in Portugal, I spoke at the gathering, I don't know how many years ago that was, at your annual gathering for the boutique. You also had all these photo studios. So can you also explain how that works? Because I think the other thing that I found quite remarkable is actually you decided at some point that you were going to shoot all of the looks and the clothes and the products yourself in a studio. Was it like that from the beginning? From the beginning, from day one. Because that's another element that has a logistical complication. So, so basically, how does that work? Because the same store, no, different stores might have the same product. So, so the way it works, we have four hubs. The main hub is in uh, Portugal still. It can produce up to 4,000 products a day. And the second is in LA, in the US. Then we have one in Sao Paulo and we have one in Hong Kong. Every single product on the platform is 
styled and shot and photoshopped by us, by Farfetch, internally. But you do have a back office if you're a boutique or a brand. We now have brands on the platform as well, where you check if the product has already been shot. So you can just go once, you know, key in the brand name, you know, click jackets, color, let's say red, whatnot, and you see all the jackets that we've shot for that season. And then if it's already in the catalog, you just hook to that and skew. And then it can go up and for sale. It. So on average, 60% um, of our products have multiple sellers and the best selling products will have like 30, 40, 50 sellers. And obviously we're not taking 50 pictures, we're taking just one. So. Right, so the store, if they found that the product in question wasn't on the platform, they have to send it to one of those yeah. hubs mm -hmm. and then you shoot it and then you send it back. Exactly. It's a lot of time for product to be not available for sale though, which is one of the challenges with an e-commerce business, right? It's like- It's know. actually okay because if you, if you think of it, um, a boutique will buy, let's say 10 pairs of shoes and they will send sample size one to us in the beginning of the season. They still have nine in stock. So the chances, and we'll take, uh, it will be a one week turnaround. Okay. Chances that they will sell out and miss that sale of that pair. Yeah. Which by the way, they know it's a way, okay, so they can tell the customer, listen, we'll have it back in three days or four days or whatnot. It's actually minimal. Um, sure. It's actually not, not a big um, issue. Okay. So the boutique thought it was going to be a big issue in the beginning. Oh, my stuff is going to be out of the store for a long time. And so we had to... You had to explain do, that. Yes, to explain that, yeah. So, so far, so it sounds so easy, right? You, you have to build a technology platform, you build a data platform, you build a logistics and operations platform. What were the hardest things in those early days when you were still... You know, you, got the, you said you launched for 25 stores. What, like, what happened as the business started to, to scale? I, th I think the most um, difficult thing was to, to get the marketplace dynamics working, the flywheel. You know, you get supply, supply needs demand, so you need to generate demand, um, you need to generate liquidity, so otherwise people leave the platform. So I think generating demand for that supply was the biggest obstacle to start with. So basically acquiring customers. Acquiring customers. Because it's really interesting, with this model, we had 300 designer brands. With 25 boutiques, we managed to have 300 designer brands from day one. Wow. And around 3,000, 4,000 products, which is an amazing, fully functional department store website. And, and you didn't buy any inventory. I didn't buy any inventory. Which so, is kind of amazing. So as yeah. a consumer destination, it was already interesting. And because of the boutiques, it was already curated. We had eyewear. We had shoes, we had bags, we had small accessories, we had all sorts of lengths of dresses. We had, it was very well merchandised because they obviously did the merchandising for us. Now, how do you get customers to find um, this amazing destination that you've created, generate sales for your sellers so that they don't leave on season two and, and you get that flywheel working? And that took us a, a number of years, actually. The other thing is we launched Farfetch and two weeks later, Lehman, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. We launched in October 2008, just before the Great timing, Great, Jose. amazing timing. <laughs> I need to tell the, the short sellers when I'm launching something. Um, it's a, it was just uh, completely crazy, which, which means demand had a huge contraction. It was actually the only couple of years that luxury you know, bleeped and yeah. went down in sales. And you couldn't find any investors. That's the next thing, right? Which mm -hmm. is like the fundraising environment. Mm -hmm. When did you raise the first? 2010. 
So you so for you the first three, three years, years you financed it on your own. Yes. Yeah. Essentially. How did you do that? I basically took loans from uh, my other businesses, the shoe business, was lending money to Farfetch and obviously my, my, my own, uh, all the money I had. And that was it. I, it's so funny that when our first VC invested, Frederick Kuhr, uh, in 2010, I told him, listen, first, first money has to repay my shoe company. I said, what? <laughs> that's not, we're a VC. We don't, we don't invest in businesses so they can repay that. Well, that's it, because otherwise I have 80 people that want to be jobless. So that was, you know, the... That was the, one of the conditions. The conditions. So the application of, of, of funds uh, was, was actually to repay, a part, part of it was to repay the loans from, from my other business. And so, so if Firefetch hadn't worked, I would have been bankrupt. All the businesses, personally, the whole lot. So it's, uh, it would have been Was that, tough. is the psychology of taking a risk like that? I mean, for, like, if we go back to little Jose Neves sitting in the little town outside Porto, grew up in a, you know, focused on coding, all of a sudden you're like making this big personal uh, risk. You know, you didn't describe, you said you wanted to be an astronaut, but all of a sudden you're like making these big <laughs> financial bets personally. Like what was it, you know, inside you that gave you the strength to do that? That's a big risk. I think, I think it's uh, two things. First, you know, when you want something, when you will not forgive yourself if you don't try an idea. When you have that feeling, say, I will not forgive myself if I don't give a go at this. Then you just have to do it because, you know, you're going to feel miserable for the rest of your life. So, so you, you just have to do it. So, so that, that was the feeling I had at the time. Um, and it's still my advice, my only advice to entrepreneurs is that only start a company if, you, if you're not going to forgive yourself if you didn't do it. Because that's the only way you're, you're going to have the resilience to cut through the hole. And you know what? You always win. Because even if you shut down the company, you wouldn't have forgiven yourself if you hadn't uh, tried it, right? So you, it's a... That, that mantra is going through your head throughout this whole thing, which is, I won't forgive myself if I don't try. Yeah. And I think the other thing is I had nothing to lose. Because I, you know, I didn't have a, a career. I was an entrepreneur since the age of 19. You know, I didn't have a, a CV or a reputation to defend. Um, but you had these two companies. I had these two built, companies, right? That's, you know, and you yes. had all these employees. I think you're right. I guess I'm just you a had, mistake. <laughs> yeah, you had. You definitely had something to lose, and I think that the word resilience is so appropriate because you know the, one of the reasons we're doing this series is so many people paint entrepreneurial journeys as this like. You know, you look at, you know, they put entrepreneurs on the front page of magazines and they say, you know, overnight success and they say, you know, you know, skyrocketing valuation. And it's it, they, everyone in the media, they make it sound so easy, but it takes drive. It takes resilience. It takes, you know, it takes the kind of wherewithal and personal fortitude to make it through the tough moments and to take risks like the ones you were taking, which, um, you know, for me, it's like a big part of the, the personal journey of an entrepreneur. Definitely. I, th I think resilience is probably the, the biggest um, quality that an entrepreneur um, can have. Uh, it's the one that if, if, you, if you do not have resilience, you're never going to make it. Because, you know, at some point along the, the journey, you're going to go through a struggle. I mean, there's this passage in, in the book, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard yeah. Thing About Hard Things, yeah. which is the struggle. Yeah. And what he says is that every single entrepreneur, pick one, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, first time lucky or first time successful, whatever you call it, but 
he also went through his struggles. He's going through a struggle now. Going through a struggle now. But, but you know, Pika and Entrepreneur, you will find that in their story, there was this valley of despair that you have to cross. There's always a valley of despair. So, Jose, what was your valley of despair? Like, what was the hardest moment through this experience? I think, you know, definitely the first few years where there was no funding, um, the industry was going through a contraction, we hadn't uh, created the flywheel yet. Uh, even after we, we, we raised money, I think in, in the first two, three years, I always remember having, a, you know, raising money and, and having a six-month runway. That's it. You know, either we raise money or six months, we shut the whole thing down, which is typical of startups, right? So six months run is actually not that bad. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's a lot of tension because you've suddenly you've, you've buried, you know, all your money and five, six, seven years of your life and, um, and you still haven't made it. And, but your team needs to believe that you are fully confident that everything is going to be fine and your suppliers and your partners and your investors. So you need to, uh, to pass this aura of absolute confidence. Uh, when, when inside, actually, <laughs> the reality is very different. Um, yeah. So I, I, th- I think it's um, so. So I think the, the, definitely the first um, five years were, were was there tough. was there a moment when you realized that this thing might actually work? Like, did you? Was there like a certain period where that flywheel started happening? Yes. Yes. I cannot pinpoint exactly when it happened. Probably, you know, three, four years after we, we, we launched, where you could really see all we need to do is to sign great boutiques, get their fantastic products on the platform, and then we know there is demand and we know how to find it. It became almost a land grab. So we need to be in all the markets where there are great boutiques because we don't want to be copied by anyone else. And there is this opportunity to just grow the platform and to uh, actually change the whole the entire industry. And so there was definitely a moment in time where it was clear that all we need is is um, is really to create this community, and the rest will will sort itself out. Well, so to say, obviously with huge technical, logistical, team people challenges. But yeah, there, there was this. Um, and that's, that's probably not a coincidence. That's when we were able to raise money because VCs can also see that, right? They can spot the, the trains and yeah. the cohorts and all of that. How much money have you raised up until now? Um, I think it's uh, around 700 million. $700 million. And so now you have, you know, with raising $700 million, you have a lot of expectation as well, right? Because all those investors are expecting... The dynamic of Farfetch has changed now, right? So Farfetch is now a highly visible company. It's not just visible in fashion, it's visible in the Silicon Valley and amongst the investor community. Your two loves, technology and fashion. But now there's a lot of expectation. So how do you, how has the dynamic changed? The flywheel is working now. You've got, you know, I think 11 offices or something. Uh, 12 now. 12 yeah. offices mm-hmm. around the world. Got almost 2,000 people. Got a huge global. 2,700. 2,700 people. What is it like today to be Jose Neves? No, not little Jose Neves in, the, in Porto. We're still the same people um, and, and we're just doing different uh, jobs. Uh, my job 10 years ago when I started Firefetch, my job today is, is completely different. 
Back in the days, I was jumping planes, signing boutiques, sitting down with developers, designing the platform and taking care of absolutely everything. And today, it's really about leadership, uh, leadership, culture, values, and, and obviously being also the ambassador for the company and our mission. Yeah, and obviously managing investors and all of that, but it's, it's a very different job. But I'm still loving it, so yeah. So it's, Was uh, it it's hard very, for very you to, one of the challenges fun. I think lots of founders have, I'd probably put myself in this category, is letting go of things. So like if you're the person who was at the beginning mm -hmm. working on the code and designing the platform, and how do you, how have you taken on the mantle of leadership? And how have you, you know, empowered, you talked about culture, how have you empowered the people around you and built a team around you that you can trust? First, it's, it's paramount. And, and you will learn it one way or another. And it could be the hard way or it could be the, the easier way. There's no way you can scale a company to thousands of people, multiple countries and all of that, if you don't learn how to empower people to fulfill their dreams. So you're, it's almost like you have your dream, but you have to take everyone with you. Therefore, they have to fulfill their dreams. And how do you create an environment where that happens? To me, that, that, was, that wasn't too difficult. Somehow I think it's maybe a trace of personality. I, I tend to trust people very easily and let them run, uh, let them have their own personal style about things and their own style of leadership because they're all different types of leaders. And it wasn't too difficult for me so far. So, yeah. How do you know when you found the right, like in the key roles, like people like Andrew Robb and Suzanne Tidefreder and like some of these people who've been with you since the very, how do you know when you found someone that's a good fit for Farfetch though? Because although they may all have their own leadership style and approach, they somehow also have to fit the culture and the ambition and the kind of drive of this business. It's a great question. I, th I think this is one of the lessons I I've learned. Uh, the culture of a business exists from day one and it really comes from the founder and that founding team. So those 10 guys in a, in a, in a garage or whatnot, um, the culture is already there. And at that time, it's unspoken. You don't need to put it on a piece of paper. This is a complete waste of time, actually, because people, people feel it. The way the founder is behaving, the way the other guys are behaving, it's, 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 um, it's just there. And, and it's actually very easy to see if someone is a fit or not. Once the company gets bigger, it is, um, and we learned that um, the hard way, which which we, we had a couple of you know, high-profile um, hires that didn't go well uh, with, with traumatic um, exits and consequences for the, the people, that, the, the, for, for the team. Um, and we were around 150 people at the time. And I always thought culture and values were management book jargon and it was like stuff that you know, McKinsey or, or Bain writes to sell uh, reports and all of that. So, I never believed in that. I said, why, why do we, you know, this is just mumbo jumbo. Um, and that's when the, the penny dropped. So, okay, so what's going wrong here? Uh, we're, we're hiring the, the wrong people and they seem great on paper. They are great interviewers, of course. They're intelligent, you know, you know accomplished professionals. They know how to conduct an interview. Uh, but they're pitching to you and you're pitching to them. So, the, so actually you're not getting to know each other. Um, so at that moment in time, we, we really decided we, we, we needed help. So we, we actually got um, a, a great um, guy who works on, on company culture and values. And, and we started doing that because it's an internal exercise. No one is going to come and tell you 
what your company culture is, which is the other thing I didn't know. So actually, you already have a culture. All you have to, to do is verbalize it and, and put document it in a way that it. document it so that it's clear to everyone. And then that becomes a mantra that you repeat every single day to every single person in the company. For That's it for the rest of... Uh, uh, of the history of the company and it, it may change slightly but the DNA never changes and I think that's the, my biggest lesson as, as an entrepreneur is, is that um, uh, you know culture um, really trumps um, everything else like they say culture is strategy for breakfast um, uh, it, it's it's a cliche but it's true strategy changes and strategy can be fantastic but then if the people on the ground they don't have a sense of purpose a sense of mission and if they don't feel that they belong to and, uh, and have this strong cultural fit, then it, it won't work. How does it feel now, every day, doing what you do? feels great. I, I'm, uh, I'm very lucky, very fortunate to do what I love doing, uh, work in my, in my two passions, technology and fashion, and, and then work with this amazing group of people, uh, the, you know, the Firefetch team, which um, I honestly, I, I learn every single day with them. And for me, that's a mission in itself, is how do you create a great place to work. Um, that should be, for every single company, that should be a mission in itself, independently of whatever other mission you have, and that will be different from company to company. So, at the moment, it's, um, it's, it's a great feeling. And what's next? Well, we, we, you know, we keep growing. We, we're still far from fulfilling the vision, which is to really you know, empower the industry to tap on, on technology to solve its challenges. And I think the next big frontier is physical retail, which is still 90% of uh, where the action is. And, and it will be, cut the cake as you want, could be 60%, could be 70%. Could be, still matter. the majority. Exactly. It will be the majority of, of sales. But they're still happening in an isolated way, for, for the most part, from the digital world. And they're actually happening in a, in a very clunky way. I mean, shops still work like they, they used to work in the 90s, uh, with a bit maybe of clientele and software on top, but if that. And that's not going to continue. That's definitely you know, up for, for disruption and, and for another revolution. And, and, and I think for me that that's really exciting. And how do you combine both worlds there will become a day when the conversation about online and offline sales is just doesn't make any sense. It's people, people, it's just, it's just sales. It's just, it's just sales. retail. It's just retail. Yeah. And I don't know if that's going to be in five years or in seven or in ten, but we definitely want to be pioneers in that. So the little revolutionary from Portugal has more revolutions to come. Hopefully, yeah. Okay. We're working on that. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jose. Thank it's you. It's really great to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to hear more episodes and give us a rating and email us at podcast@businessoffashion.com with any questions or guest suggestions. To learn more about BOF, click on the description notes in this episode. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time only, we are offering our BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF Professional membership. 
So to get 25% off your first year of a BOF Professional membership, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special discount code PODCAST2018 at checkout. That's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. (coughs) Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.